welcome to a special Thanksgiving edition of Charting the Territories. It's actually not a special edition. Our normal launch date is the fourth Thursday of every month, and it just so happens in November that will mean it's uh, going to be on Thanksgiving. So happy Thanksgiving uh, to everyone out there. My name is Al Getz, and with me as always is my co-host, John Boucher. John, how how are you? We're actually not recording this on Thanksgiving. We're recording it a few days earlier, but you can guess, uh, you know, predict the future. Uh, how is your Thanksgiving going? Thanksgiving's going great. Wonderful. Uh, I have a, a plate right beside me as we record, so any odd background noise that the listeners hear is probably me eating potatoes. Just uh, it's my audio disclaimer for the for this particular show. Happy Thanksgiving to everyone. Yeah, happy Thanksgiving. I I know this has probably been the uh, most tumultuous year in the lives of probably everyone listening, but um, I hope there are, you know, things you can be thankful for uh, on this day. Uh, I know I personally, and and I can speak for John as well, we're thankful that you listen to us. Uh, Hopefully you listen to us every month. Uh, or sporadically, or maybe this is your first time, but we are thankful to have listeners. Uh, I also want to say, I think both John and I are thankful that we, for the first time, are Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame voters. I'm very thankful for that, yeah. Uh, that was something that uh, we found out about, uh, a little, you know, shortly before the deadline to submit. So uh, I, I don't, I don't know uh, how much time John put into it, but I sort of had to, you know, race and, and, and look at things and, and figure out who I was going to vote for and get it in, in time. But, uh, and that's just sort of validation of the podcast and, and the work that I'm doing with the blog and the uh, work that John has been doing with his uh, incredible collection of archives related to wrestling over the years. I, I, I honestly, I was surprised John, that you were a first time voter. I thought for sure you would have already been in the, in that uh, category. Uh, likewise, I thought I thought would assume the same had the same assumed the same for you. Uh, yeah, and that was a very controversial year this year. It was, and and you can actually hear both of our picks as part of the 605 Super Podcast Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame special. Uh, I appear on one of the panels in part one, and John appears in one of the panels of part two. So whichever part you listen to, you're going to get representation from the Charting the Territories crew. How uh, you had a few controversial votes. I yeah, well, none of none of the ones I voted for got in. But given that no one from North America got in this year, uh, and and I did not vote in the international categories, I have some very small uh, time periods where I'm knowledgeable about Japan and Mexico, and and maybe even to a lesser extent the rest of the international. But I don't feel qualified to vote on those categories as a whole. Um, my Japan knowledge is pretty much the 90s, and Mexico is probably the mid to late 90s with a, a little bit of knowledge of, of maybe the mid 80s. So I, I don't think it's right to vote for that those those categories as a whole because I, I don't know enough about uh, anything before or after those years. Yeah, I also abstain from Japan, Mexico, and Europe, Australia, New Zealand, Pacific Islands, and Africa. Just because I didn't feel like I had the time to properly, you know, rather than just like, oh, yes, that sounds good. One vote for this guy rather than throw off everything. Maybe next year. It's nice to just know that next year, hopefully, uh, we'll be voting again so we can put in more being such a, a, a insane 
person about research, I really like to put a little more research in than I did this year. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I, like I said, we, we didn't know about this until a few weeks before the deadline, I think. So now that I know, uh, again, I'm assuming we're not going to be, you know, removed from the list. Maybe my picks were so bad <laughs> that Dave was like, know. this it's guy has no idea what he's talking about. How, how the hell did we give him a ballot? Uh, assuming that's not the case, I'll have a year to, you know, think about it. And uh, there are also some new candidates that are going to be on the ballot next year, uh, in particular, Bill Dundee and the Hollywood Blondes of Jerry Brown and Buddy Roberts. Uh, and and both of those uh, you know, they have history with the Watts McGurk territory. The Blondes were a top tag team for, I think, three distinct runs uh, in the McGurk territory. And Dundee, of course, was a booker uh, for one of the red hot periods of Mid South wrestling in 1984. It's interesting too, looking at Dundee. Um, you know, do, do are are we factoring in his 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 work as booker in Mid Mid South? Uh, you know, because that. You know, that 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 raises him as a Hall of Famer, whereas like someone, you know, when people look at look at Ole Anderson, they'll look at his time as a booker or his post 1982 or 83 time as a booker as a, a negative towards his candidacy. So it's very interesting to factor in all these. Yeah, but I, but I think Ole as a booker overall, there are at the very least, it's a it's a break even that he had some good years and some bad years. Yeah. Uh, so I don't think as if you consider him as a booker, it's going to hurt him. Uh, but I don't think it's going to add to him if you count his whole uh, run as a booker. Yeah. So yeah, that, and that's just sort of one of the things, especially as a new voter, that I'm not quite sure how it worked. But um, just in being on the panel. I, I learned a little bit more you know, from the other longtime voters about how it works, and I think I will be better prepared and will have more time to prepare uh, next year and, and uh, really do a good job of, of selecting. Uh, but yeah. want to get to uh, our podcast. I don't want to yeah. spend our podcast plugging someone else's podcast. <laughs> that seems counterproductive because we've got a lot of talk to talk about this month, we're covering the fourth quarter of 1976. We've got turns. We've got title changes. We've got Terry Funk and a whole lot more. We're also going to go back to the third quarter of 1962, where Danny Hodge has a series of matches against a man who will become one of his biggest career rivals. Uh, Joe McCarthy, the wrestler, seemingly takes a page from the notebook of Joe McCarthy, the senator. And, of course, the latest edition of Al goes on an extended rant about titles and titles histories and how silly they are but our blog located at www.chartingtheterritories.com is where you can see all the fancy charts that i spend way too much time putting together the charts are the best way to follow these statistics we track at charting the territories in this podcast we sort of add you know a little more color uh, to to the tale of the stats we sort of uh, go a little more in depth but charting the territories at its Core is a data-driven look at pro wrestling in the territorial era, with a primary focus on the Leroy McGurk, Bill Watts territory from the late 50s through the mid-80s. In addition to attempting to get records of every house show promoted in the territory during that time, we use the data that we have to create statistics that quantify wrestlers' achievements in a way that stats used in other sports can't capture, and that take into account the unique nature of pro wrestling. We have two main statistics that you'll hear us talking about on the podcast, and you'll see it 
on the blog. The first is a SPOT rating, and SPOT stands for Statistical Position Over Time, and it measures a wrestler's average position, or SPOT, on the cards. If a wrestler is always in main events or near the top of the card, they're going to have a higher spot rating than someone who generally wrestles in the middle of the card or in the opening matches. Spot is a number between 0 and 1 expressed as a two-digit decimal, so the highest possible score is a 1.00, and that would mean the wrestler was in the main event of every card they were advertised on in a given time period. The other statistic is a feud score, with feud standing for frequent encounters using data, and it's used to measure what I call the intensity of a feud based on how many times a match happens on house shows and how those matches are distributed over a short period of time. If it's just once a week for a few weeks, it'll have a low feud score. If uh, two guys are wrestling one another in multiple towns with rematches over multiple weeks, it's going to have a higher feud score. It expresses a whole integer, and as a broad rule of thumb, a feud score of 25 or higher means it's a feud, and 40 or higher means it's a major feud. And on top of that, I've actually added a new data point to the spot ratings charts that you can see on the blog. Uh, one of the trickier things uh, is trying to decipher who's a full-time wrestler and who's a part-time wrestler, because it's not like everyone on the crew wrestles seven nights a week. There are uh, wrestlers who wrestle less often than the regulars in the crew. Uh, and in addition to that, since we're generally dealing with incomplete data, we don't have all the house shows, just because someone is, isn't, uh, isn't booked seven nights a week in my records doesn't mean they would be if I had you know, all the shows I'm missing. So I decided to measure the uh, bookings per week for all of the wrestlers on the charts who, who are there on a regular basis. And it's a, a better way of, of trying to decipher who the um, full-timers are and who the part-timers are. And we're going to talk a little more about that later on in the podcast. Um, where we normally do our mailbag, I'm, I'm rebranding that. I'm, I'm uh, putting a... a I'm stopping the mailbag because someone on Twitter mentioned uh, that I sound like I'm 65 years old. Uh, so uh, because of that, I've disabled all Twitter comments for now till the end of time. So I don't want to deal with that. <laughs> um, but no, we're going to call it Stats 101, and it will take listener questions, but it'll also uh, have me going into a little more in-depth about the the stat stuff. Um, one of the great things I like about this podcast is that while we refer to these numbers, it's not very data-heavy. But there are people who want that little insight into how this all works and how things are calculated and what it means. And so uh, towards the latter end of each podcast, we will have Stats 101 where we talk a little further about that. Um, and I also, you know, Thanksgiving, John, is a big day for wrestling historically. Uh, a lot of the territories used to have uh, big house shows on Thanksgiving. Uh, did you ever attend one such show? I have never been to a Thanksgiving show. Um, it's weird. It's, it's weird because when you, you look at, you look back at uh, these dates, you go back and, you, you know, you go back to like, all the way to the, it was a 60, 61 in Greensboro every night. And it's like, you look through every, every territory. The only exceptions are being like the territories that ran, you know, the weekly shows, you know, like, like Tennessee, uh, and the WWF, uh, in the Northeast, which is where I was. And when I, you know, when I, uh, in my, my, my prime years, like the early eighties, they would never run, uh, a show on Thanksgiving. 
Uh, so I, I, I've, I've never been on. Have you have you done a Thanksgiving I, Eve or Thanksgiving? Show? I did not attend any. And I, I was trying to think if I ever worked on one as a manager. And I may have, but I'm not positive. I do know I worked shows on Christmas Day. Mm -hmm. uh, in Tennessee for Southern States Wrestling, uh, Bo James, who ran Southern States Wrestling, uh, would run most years on, on Christmas Day. And I worked many of those cards. Um, Thanksgiving, if he ran them, I probably was out of town. I, my family is all in the Northeast, so I um, almost always visit them. In fact, uh, due to the pandemic, this will only be the second time that I recall that I won't be in New York uh, on Thanksgiving. Oh, wow. um, the other time was five years ago. Uh, I broke my leg five days before Thanksgiving. Oh, geez. As a matter of fact, it was uh, five years yesterday as we're recording this. We're recording this on the Sunday before Thanksgiving. It was five years ago, uh, the Saturday before Thanksgiving, uh, where oh, I broke my leg in four places in Barnesville, Georgia, and there was no way I was going to be able to go to New York. So I missed that. Yeah. Let's go back in the time machine, John. Let's jump back to 1976 mm. and the fourth quarter. Uh, there's a lot going on. If we recall, back in the summer, they had the first ever Superdome show with Watts's uh, title match against NWA World Heavyweight Champion Terry Funk being the main, and the Jim Bowie death match between Dick Murdoch and Killer Carl Cox was the semi. So Watts, Cox, and Murdoch are all still major players here. Watts is now feuding with the spoiler, Don Jardine, who briefly has help from a second spoiler, and no spoilers yet, but we will spoil the identity of the second spoiler in a little bit. Uh, Cox and Murdoch actually both leave for about a month to go do a tour of all Japan. And I did check, and even though they're feuding here in the McGurk territory, they teamed up a few times in Japan. Um, hmm. Now, to hedge it, uh, Cox was working under a mask as the spirit, so yeah. perhaps it's not the same thing. And again, even if they were to team in Japan, in those days, word did not travel across the ocean and no one was there tweeting pictures of them, you know, uh, at Rivera's steakhouse together after a match. But there were three babyface turns during the quarter and all of them seemed to revolve around the U S tag team title picture. At the beginning of the quarter, the champions are heels killer call Cox and Bob Sweetan, and on October 5th in Shreveport, they defend against another heel team of Bobby Jaggers and Randy Tyler. And the newspaper uh, results the following day says the match went to a double disqualification, and the way it reads, it doesn't quite spell this out, but it's inferred that both teams actually split up mid-match and began fighting with one another. Um, the, I believe there was a TV angle to split up Jaggers and Tyler. So it's possible the angle aired the week before this title match. And so they already had friction, but then it also somehow led to Cox and Sweet Tan splitting up as well. Uh, so I, I just, I, you know, of course, I wish we had all this TV so we could know. But uh, both teams split up with Sweet Tan going babyface and Randy Tyler going babyface. But Cox and Sweet Tan are still co-holders of the tag belts, but are no longer partners. So they do a match two weeks later in Shreveport, where each uh, member of the championship team gets to pick their own partner. So Cox picks Ken Patera, and Sweet Tan picks Randy Tyler. 
and Cox and Patera win that and win the belts. And then at some point over the next month, uh, at a TV taping, the uh, new champs of Cox and Patera lose the titles to Bill Watts and Billy Robinson. And apparently out of that, Cox and Patera split up with Patera going babyface. Hmm. So let's recap Killer Call Cox's A Year in the Life. He comes in in uh, the summer or fall of 1975 with uh, Dick Murdoch as his partner. They split up and Murdoch goes babyface. Cox has as his manager, Buck Robley. Robley turns babyface. And then Cox teams up with Bob Sweetan. And Sweetan goes babyface. And so he picks Ken Patera. And Ken Patera goes babyface. So my question to you, John, is what the hell is up with Killer Carl Cox and why does he not have any friends? I don't know. That's maybe his initials. I don't know. <laughs> that Well, uh, from from what we hear, that would not be a reason for Murdoch to, you know, split with him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. Maybe they found out his real name was Herb. Ah, uh, yeah. and, and that just did it for them. Um, but one of these babyface turns leads to the biggest feud of the quarter as measured using our feud scores. And that is the feud between Bobby Jaggers and Randy Tyler. And looking at the feud scores, uh, remember a 25 or greater is a feud and a 40 or greater is a major feud. And this one hits that magic number of 40 in uh, mid-November. It's a, you know, it's a feud um, for several weeks and it's a major feud uh, as the feud score hits 40. Um, but the feud plays out differently in different markets. And depending on the town, it stretches from October to January. Um, but in some towns, the, the, you know, the blow off was a lights out match. Some places it was a no DQ match. Some places it was a Texas death match. And in some places they actually added the brass knucks trophy into the mix. Um, but one interesting finish I read was October 18th in Monroe. Jaggers was disqualified for throwing Tyler over the top rope. But then immediately afterwards, Tyler ran Jaggers' uh, head into the ring post, so the ref DQ'd him as well. (laughs) And then Randy's brother, Rip Tyler, came in for a week. I believe he was in Gulf Coast, but he came in for a week to be part of the feud. And he sided not with his brother, but with Jaggers. And in an ad for the December 7th show in Alexandria, uh, the ad states that Rip Tyler says the Tyler family is tired of Randy giving the Tyler name such a bad rep after the rest of the clan have worked so hard all these years to make it so well respected. Now, keep in mind, Rip was the heel. So he's basically (laughs) saying that Randy gave the family a bad rep by being a a babyface. Wow. Uh, remember, they, they are billed as related to Tarzan Tyler. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so that is the Tyler clan, Tarzan, uh, Rip, and Randy. Um, but the feud, uh, again, stretches out uh, in various markets. Uh, and the final match between them is January 10th, 1977, so very early 77 in Monroe, where Tyler beats Jaggers in a lights-out, loser-leaves-town match. Jaggers w- goes to Central States, and he comes back in March of 1978 with a new partner, and that's Jerry Brown. And Bobby Jaggers is interesting because 
he's someone that I think all of our listeners are familiar with as uh, from his wrestling career. I don't know if the term tag team specialist is appropriate, but he was generally a tag team wrestler. Um, he had a big run as a single in Florida. And of course, he had a, uh, a lengthy run uh, in Portland. Um, where sometimes he's, you know, part of uh, Rip Oliver's clan. Sometimes he's a, a singles. But uh, as I was, you know, coming looking at these names, I was like, I want, you know, I don't know anything about Bobby Jaggers' life outside of wrestling. So I, I did a quick Google search, and I was pretty fascinated by what I saw. And so, John, I wanted you to tell our listeners about the life and times of the hangman, Bobby Jaggers. Yeah, he's. Uh, I love. I love. Love Bobby Jaggers. He. He's one of these guys that is just perfect for this era of of territorial wrestling. Um, his look, his build. He's kind of built like Dusty Rhodes. His, his in ring work, the promos, the, the whole package, everything. Um, you hear people talk about some guys from from this era and say, oh, they wouldn't make it these days. They wouldn't last a day at the performance center. Yeah, you know, and, and Bobby Jaggers is likely one of those types of guys that people have in mind when they're making that argument. Uh, I obviously don't look at that as a, as a negative. On the, on the contrary, actually, I'd, I'd argue that guys like Bobby Jaggers are very, very valuable, if not essential to, you know, territorial era promotions. You know, he's not a guy that you're going to build your promotion on, but he's a perfect guy to bring in, have him work in a top spot, or like you said, as a tag team and have him hold the belt or the tag belt six months or whatever and then cycle him out, have him put over the next guy and whatever. Uh, I don't want to get too far into like a, a modern wrestling rant, but I mean, not, not having guys like Bobby Jaggers, guys who are presented like Bobby Jaggers, guys who are booked like Bobby Jaggers, that's one of the things I really miss in, in modern wrestling. And he's primarily known as a, as a Kansas boy, but he was actually born uh, in Washington State in 1948. Uh, he talks about early on in his childhood not even really being a fan of wrestling growing up, just sort of stumbling upon it because he and his dad used to watch boxing on Friday nights and, and Portland wrestling was on after the boxing matches. And uh, Bobby Jaggers was a, was a wrestler in high school. And what was the amount of effort it took to change the channel uh, in the mid sixties, they just left it on. Uh, so that was really the extent of his fandom. As, as I mean, as yeah, kid. you had to get up off the couch, walk over the TV, bend <laughs> over and turn that knob. And it was not, you know, it was, it was not a very forgiving knob. He actually had to, you know, put no. some, uh, put some muscle into it to get it to yeah. click over to the next channel. So I, I understand. And he was a high school athlete too. So you can imagine. Um, so he, that was really the extent of his, his being a fan as a kid, uh, drafted into the army right out of high school, 1966. Uh, and he's in Vietnam for 18 months, saw a lot of combat action during that time, actually fought in the Tet Offensive and several other notable battles, which I am, am not going to attempt to pronounce since I have enough troubles with uh, towns in New Orleans. Uh, but yeah, he, he saw a lot of, lot of action over there and, and he had a, had a rough time uh, coming back home, both, both physically and, and emotionally. Um, he got hepatitis C uh, there from exposure to Agent Orange. And it was just like uh, just a rough time all all around for him. Not not good. Um, and uh, just as a quick aside, I think it, you think about him having hepatitis C and the amount of blood <laughs> that he bled during his career is absolutely horrifying. True. Um, 
but he, he was not in a great place after coming back from from Vietnam, and he, he ends up get, getting a job working in an Nabisco cookie factory. Uh, and after after their shifts, they would go down to this local bar, the the Rimrock Cafe, uh, and they would arm wrestle like the this was the all the guys that worked in the cookie factory. And that's where he met Sandy Barr, you know, Pacific Northwest mainstay, father of Art Barr and Jesse Barr, Jimmy Jack Funk. Uh, and he was just happened to be hanging out there, too. And Sandy was uh, impressed enough with either his performance or appearance. that he's like, hey, kid, you want to want to be a wrestler? Uh, and Bobby just cuts to the cuts to the chase. And like, yeah, how much how much do you make as a wrestler? And Sandy Barr says, oh, you could sometimes make three hundred dollars a week. Uh, which was twice as much as Bobby was making at the cookie factory. So Bobby, Bobby was sold. Uh, and he's actually said on numerous occasions that him meeting Sandy Barr and the, the favor Sandy did for him at that point in his life uh, saved his life, which is a, a very, very touching when you hear him, him say it. Um, and he starts training in, in 1971. Uh, Sandy Barr has him training with Moondog Maine, and uh, Sabu Singh. Uh, and Jagger says he wasn't even smartened up, really, during his training here. Just basically, he, they used him as a tackling dummy. <laughs> Sabu Singh is uh, better known as Jose Gonzalez, invader number one. And he will he will figure into Bobby's career later down the line as well. Uh, Bobby debuts in 72, Arizona, under the name Bobby Maine. And they, he's billed there as Moondog Maine's brother. Um He's half of the tag champs, I think it was Chris Colt at this point. Uh, and the Bobby Maine name was not Bobby's idea. It was the idea of Kurt Von Steiger and Tito Montez, two guys who were involved in various capacities as wrestlers slash trainers in both Arizona and Portland. Uh, and I think Von Steiger promoted in Arizona for a while as well. And there was really no great connection between Bobby and Moondog Maine. They weren't pals, buddies. He wasn't a mentor or anything like that. Uh, Von Steger and Montez just thought they sort of looked similar. Um, and they did this without consulting Moondog Maine first. And that sort of thing, adopting a more successful wrestler's last name, uh, was not uncommon in those days. But apparently there was some sort of confrontation between the two uh, later on, probably late 74 after his Memphis run, where he started using the Bobby Maine name and started going by Bobby Jaggers. And not, not for nothing, Bobby Jaggers is a way cooler name, I think, in my opinion. Uh, he then worked Western States for the Funks, you know, tag champ, singles champ. Uh, always spoke very highly of the Funks and really credits them uh, with making Bobby Jaggers Bobby Jaggers. Um, he didn't work there until after Dory Sr. passed. But he, uh, <laughs> he tells a funny story about Dory Sr. Despite never having met him, Bobby is, of course, known for his, his storytelling, his his, his tall tales, if you will, even more so than his wrestling sometimes. Uh, Bobby's working Amarillo TV, and he beats Terry Funk clean on TV, and it's really established him as a top guy in the territory. Like Terry Funk getting pinned on Amarillo TV it was a rarity, did not happen very often. So later in the week, Bobby's at some bar in town, and some older drunk guy comes up to him and says, like, hey, you're one of those wrestlers from TV, aren't you? And Bobby just nods very, nods very calmly to him. And so the old drunk guy's like, let me tell you a story about that damn wrestling. <laughs> and Bobby's like, oh, boy. So the old drunk guy's his beer breath is like, it took me four tries to meet Dory Funk Sr. 
<laughs> he says, well, what do you mean it took you four tries to meet Dory Funk Sr.? It's like, well, the first three times I tried to introduce myself, he knocked me out. <laughs> so Bobby says, well, which time are we starting at at here? And which seemed to smooth over things with the, the drunk man. Uh, and then he's here for McGurk in 76. We talked a little about that. Uh, Brass Nux champs at one point. He's back in 78, tagging with Jerry Brown. They've run his tag champs. Uh, he, speak, he speaks very fondly of his time in, in, in the territory. He had a funny line about Watts, though, like something to the effect of like, you know, if you have if you had a 25 minute match, you know, Watts's finish would last 24 minutes. <laughs> and if you forgot any part of that finish, you got fined. Uh, but he said that he learned learned a lot in the territory. Uh, generally speaking, everyone who worked there learned a lot while working there. You're able to thrive in that territory, and the best workers in the business came from that territory. Um, you know, he also tells a funny story about uh, Jerry Brown, a hilarious Jerry Brown story where they were here, uh, and they were they, when they were tag champs and they go out to dinner, steak dinner with their wives, and Jerry Brown is buying everybody in the bar drinks round after round after round, and at the end, you know, Bobby's like, hey, we got to settle up this bill. You know, he gives a bunch of cash to Jerry, but Jerry Brown just tells the hostess to send the check to the wrestling office, thinking it'll get paid, no questions asked. But of course, Watts ends up taking the whole thing out of both of their checks. Uh, just they, send yeah, it yeah, to the wrestling office. I'm going to try that. It. Next send time I go out, I'm going to say, I'm, I'm, uh, I work with Action Wrestling in Tyrone, Georgia. Just send our bill to the wrestling <laughs> office. Yeah, never know. It probably worked at some point. Um, he worked in Vancouver, Japan, Georgia, Central States, Portland, all over. Um, like I said, as, as far as his best probably main event type push, probably Florida, 80, 81. Uh, I think he was 79. He had just just had a kid, I think. Uh, and he's finishing up in Central States. And his career is sort of stalling, not really going forward as much as he would like. So he calls Dusty, who's booking in Florida. And Dusty, you know, Dusty's like, I got the best heels in the business down here right now. Ivan Koloff, Don Morocco, Baron Rashke. So I can't make you any promises. Um, but he's like, tell you what, come down. I'll give you two weeks on TV down here. If you get over, great. If you don't, you got to find somewhere else to go. Um, so he goes down, does TV, and he gets over. Him and Barry Windham clicked. Him and Dusty clicked. So he was off to the races in Florida. Ends up holding, uh, I think, both versions of the Florida title, multiple tag title runs again. Uh, feuds with the veritable who's who of early early 80s championship wrestling in Florida, Bugsy McGraw, Dusty, Barry Windham, Briscoes, Mike Graham, Murdoch, blah, blah, blah. Um, they thought so much of him as a heel in Florida that despite already having the best heels in business down there, Dusty had David Von Erich uh, ride with uh, Bobby and stay with Bobby when David was in Florida because uh, they wanted Bobby to teach him how to be a heel. Uh, really good heel run or in, in Florida, followed by another good run in Southwest. And this was great for him because this was Southwest when they had the spot on the USA Network. So this is great exposure, national exposure. And this is where he's involved in the, the angle. Like it's not really an angle, just an interview spot where Scott Casey uh, pours a bucket of what was presented as pig poop on Bobby Jaggers. All sorts of rumors for years that that was the angle that got them booted from the USA Network, but in reality it was them being behind on their bills. Uh, has a nice year and a half run, so Portland Pacific Northwest after this, you know, similar to Florida Southwest, um, holds a regional title, tag title. I think, he, I think he may have even booked in Portland for a little bit. Uh, quick Central States run before he goes to Crockett WCW, where he tagged with uh, Dutch Mantel as the Kansas Jayhawks. Uh, they're a solid mid-car team, babyface team, which is odd. 
Yeah, um, I, I, you know, as a teenager watching, they that seemed out of place. Uh, there, there being baby faces there. Um, yeah, they, you know, they'll they'll beat like in their mid card. You know, they'll beat like Thunderfoot's one and two. You know, but they're not going to beat the new breed, which is that's that's a good sort of indication of how they're booked there. I always feel like you always said, like, like you said, I uh, about them being uh, baby faces. I always thought like that team would have been great as heels in Memphis rather than baby faces in Crockett. But the WCW money was probably probably nice. Yeah, and I uh, think their their heel side tag team wise was pretty loaded, so that just yeah, might yeah. have been the best fit for them. And his his, his last run in a top spot was probably in uh, Puerto Rico, tagging with Philophon. He was working as, as Dan Crawford at the time. Uh, and they were there when Bruiser Brody uh, was murdered in the uh, in the other locker room, but on that card. And he, he was very disturbed by, by what happened there. It affected him deeply. And he, he scales back his schedule quite a bit after, after leaving Puerto Rico. Uh, he's also 40 years old. Uh, he wrestled a little bit in Florida again, uh, putting over Dustin Rhodes twice on TV on his way out, like the professional that he was. Uh, he's more or less retired by 1991 as the territory. They're sort of shriveling up and there weren't really going to be any desirable spots for him in the WWF or WCW. Uh, he settles in, you know, with his family in, in Kansas, gets a job working in the oil fields. Uh, also puts himself, goes back to school, puts himself through school, gets a civil engineering degree. And, and from there he, he lands a job working for the state as an engineering technician. Um, a few years later, gets a job working for FEMA uh, as a, a, a road and bridge specialist for disaster relief projects. Uh, and he works for FEMA until he until he passes away in September 2012. He was stationed in Louisiana working on a disaster relief project when he died. His liver was so damaged from the Hep C, uh, couldn't clear the, uh, the infection or the toxins or whatever, and led to kidney failure. And then, you know, the body just shut down. Uh, and just to reiter- reiterate that hep C liver damage is all from Agent Orange Vietnam. Um, on one hand, yes, passing away at 64 years old is, is, is too young. Uh, and that is, that is very sad. Um, but on the other hand, uh, these, like I, I, whenever, whenever I'm able to tell a story like this, I, I, I'm always happy when you hear stories of guys moving on, able to walk away successfully uh, from professional wrestling, successfully transitioning into a fulfilling post-wrestling uh, career life. And Bobby Jaggers absolutely did this, had a great family, married 35 years, and was able to kickstart a new 20-year, uh, 20-something-year successful career after wrestling. Yeah, and that's you know the, that's the story we don't hear often enough in wrestling. We talked yeah. last month about Len Rossi, and we uh, we also talked about Paul Ellering. Even though his post wrestling career was still in wrestling, it wasn't as a wrestler. Um, but you know, and in the case of Jaggers, his life sort of had three different stages: the uh, you know his time in the war, and and afterwards, where he's sort of struggling and and uh, just working at whatever job he can, and uh, having some issues, and discovering wrestling, and being able to travel the world, and uh, it gave him enough of a you know nest egg to be able to go back to school and have a fulfilling post wrestling career. So that's uh, something you don't hear about often. And interestingly enough, another person who was 
in the territory at this time also had a uh, significant and rewarding post-wrestling career, and that was the aforementioned spoiler number two. Now, over the years, there were several spoiler number twos who would come in as partners for Don Jardine for short runs. This one was Michael Davis, and not Mike Davis of the Rock and Roll RPMs, but uh, the Mike Davis best known as Bugsy McGraw. Um, But the first several years of his career, he wrestled under various names, including Beautiful Brutus, The Big O, Mighty Brutus, The Skull, and The Brute. And here he comes in, as I mentioned, as spoiler number two, helping out Jardine. But pretty shortly thereafter, he's unmasked. Uh, and after that point, he works as the brute. And while I don't know this for a fact, I think what happened is they were running matches with Watts against spoiler number one around the horn where it was um, either spoiler unmasks or Watts leaves town. Watts won those matches, but I have a feeling they did the old switcheroo thing where uh, Jardine, because Jardine is not going to unmask himself. So they probably did a deal where before Watts could unmask spoiler number one, the spoiler number two runs in from behind and gets on Watts, but Watts makes a comeback and unmasks spoiler number two. So at, at least in the fans' eyes, they see an unmasking of a spoiler Uh, But not the spoiler. But again, the fan mindset at the time was they got to see an unmasking. They probably go home happy. And and Watts had won the match. So again, this wouldn't work today. But at the time, this this was how it went. Um, But I just recently, uh, literally just two days ago, finished reading Bugsy's uh, autobiography. Uh, And so interestingly enough, just as you mentioned with Jaggers, uh, after Bugsy's wrestling career, which I think was right around the same time as Jaggers, right around 1990 or so, um, he went to school to become a nurse and had a long career working in the ICUs and then working as a nurse uh, in, in, you know, at various levels of trauma centers. And actually at one point, uh, Jerry Briscoe reached out to him because Jack was at the same hospital that Bugsy was working at. And wow. Jerry sort of said, can you just, you know, check in on him? Even though he wasn't on Bugsy's floor, um, he just, you know, wanted a familiar face to check in on Jack. Wow. And, and he said, as, as a matter of fact, Bugsy claims that by looking at Jack's chart, he was able to extend his life by a few weeks um, oh. by looking at it and, and recommending some changes uh, that the uh, intern agreed with. So, again, he had a long, rewarding post-wrestling career, and, and these are the types of stories that w- I wish we heard more often. But, of course, yeah. we love the salacious details more than that. Uh, but so we've covered most of the main eventers in the territory for the quarter, but not all. So if we look at our spot ratings, and again, you can see that chart on chartingtheterritories.com. The other wrestlers who were considered main eventers uh, during the quarter were Pat Barrett and Skandor Akbar. And Barrett attained this status by virtue of his victory in the finals of the NWA World Junior Heavyweight Title Tournament. The title had been vacant since Danny Hodge had retired in March due to injuries suffered in uh, his last automobile accident, forced his retirement. Uh, So they had been holding a series of elimination matches around the horn for a few months, and the finals were held on September 28th in Shreveport. And... It's worth noting, John, that 
the major angles and, and title changes when they happen on house shows in this era, it's almost always in Shreveport. The finals for this tournament was a uh, one-night deal with um, the four junior heavyweights in the territory that, I guess, survived the most elimination matches. And those were Pat Barrett, Ron Starr, Nelson Royal, and Buck Robley. And then they brought in two former champions who were actually not in the territory at the time, but they came in just for uh, uh, this week. And that was Ken Mantell and Hiro Matsuda. Um the tournament was billed as a round robin, but in looking at the results, it looks like it was a bracketed tournament. Uh, there are first round matches where Star beats Mantel, Royal beats Matsuda, and Barrett beats Robley. And it's interesting if you look at it this way. So, of course, we know Barrett wins the tournament, but the other two beat the former champions. Royal beat mm-hmm. Matsuda and Star beat Mantel, which I think... I think that's intentional. I think that's a way of um, saying that even though Star and Royal didn't win the tournament, they're they're made, they're established by beating former champions. But the second round, uh, since obviously there's an odd number of wrestlers advancing, they do a coin toss thing, which was actually pretty common for tournaments back in the day. So one of the heels, of course, gets a bye, and that being Barrett. And then Royal beats Star. And in the newspaper, it says that Royal was hurt during the match and unable to continue. So Starr advances to the finals where Barrett defeats him, which sounds like a booking out um, as a way of establishing both Starr and Royal as possible contenders because Royal didn't get his finals and Starr, you know, held, you know, held his own against Barrett despite having been eliminated earlier. But it should be noted that Starr recalls this differently in his book. Mm. He says that Royal um, beat him in the semifinals and went on to lose to Barrett in the finals. So I don't know which version is accurate. Um, but Barrett then goes on to defend the title on the house shows, primarily against babyface Jay Clayton. Um, and then Royal finishes up in October. And I don't f- see his name anywhere else. He might have been injured or he might have left, take some time off. I don't really know. But Barrett loses the title to Ron Starr in New Orleans on December 2nd. And then on December 6th, in an unadvertised match in Tulsa, Nelson Royal shows back up and beats Ron Starr to win the title. The ad originally had Clayton versus Barrett in a title match and Ron Starr just in a a mid-card tag match. But instead, it's Royal over Starr and Barrett losing to Jerry Oates. The next night in Shreveport, it was advertised as Starr versus Barrett for the title and they acknowledged Starr's win the previous week in New Orleans, but of course not these title switch the night before. So Royal takes Starr's place and beats Barrett and Starr is not on the card. In Baton Rouge, on December 8th, the ad lists Clayton versus Barrett with the winner to meet new junior heavyweight champion Ron Starr. But at the show, they bring out Royal uh, and acknowledge him as the new champ, and he subs for what they claim is an ill Jay Clayton, and Royal beats Barrett. Friday the 10th in Lafayette, Nelson Royal is advertised for a defense against Barrett. We don't have results. Barrett works December 13th in Tulsa and loses to Tom Jones. Uh, And he's advertised, you know, for the following week. So 
What I'm unsure of is if one or both of these title changes were planned, and if not, why? It seems very weird to do two title switches in four days, not in the same town. Like, it'd be one thing if they switched it in Shreveport, and then next week in Shreveport, it switches yeah. back. But this is uh, from A to B, and then four nights later in a different town, before the TV can acknowledge the first yeah. switch, they go to C, and Nelson Royal wasn't even originally advertised for the show where he gets the belt. So where it gets even weirder is... Um, Nelson Royal, so after the week of the title switches, Nelson's gone. He does not appear in any advertisements or shows for the territory. Ron Starr, I think, finishes up a little bit later and then takes a couple of weeks off for the holidays and then goes to Mid-Atlantic. And Barrett is nowhere to be found after those matches in mid-December. Um, I've looked at all available options. I don't have very thorough records for Australia or Southeastern. Um, and a couple of people told me they thought uh, that Nelson was in Southeastern at that time. But based on the cards I have, I don't think so. And based on what I have for Australia, neither of them are on either of those. They're not in New Zealand. They're not in any of the, the territories we have good results for. Nelson shows back up in April, um, where he works Houston, uh, Monroe, Shreveport, and Knoxville. Barrett next shows up in April in New Zealand. Uh, and then when Nelson comes back here in June, Barrett comes in as his opponent. And then Barrett goes to work for Jarrett full-time. And meanwhile, Starr is full-time uh, in Mid-Atlantic in early 1977. So it's just all really weird, and especially when you consider that there were issues with Star later on in 1980 when he won the same belt, the uh, yeah. World Junior Heavyweight title, but then he refused to drop it to Les Thornton and basically got stripped of the title and ended up suing Leroy McGurk. Mm. So I, I just don't know what the deal is, but there's something weird going on. And Starr doesn't mention anything weird in his book. Um, but again, given how quickly he glosses over this period of time, him not saying anything doesn't mean there was anything. And the only thing I could think of is maybe they told Barrett that Nelson Royal was going to come in next week as a surprise and they wanted Barrett to drop it to him and he refused. Mm. And so they had to put it on someone else who was willing to drop it to Royal. But again, that doesn't explain why Nelson Royal is not advertised for the match of the title switch. So yeah. as of now, it's one of wrestling's very minor mysteries, but a mystery nonetheless that hopefully in time with more research, we will be able to solve. It is weird because both of those guys go missing for two or three months, which is very strange. Too. Yeah. And, and again, I, you know, I asked on Twitter and we, we, you know, ran through the gamut of every possible territory they could have gone to and they they don't seem to be anywhere uh, regularly, other than occasional appearances. Um, so I just don't know. So meanwhile, in a much less confusing arc, Skandor Akbar had returned to the territory in August and moved up to main event status, working against baby faces such as Grizzly Smith and Dick Murdoch on the house shows. But he brought in a protege, Choi Sun, billed as the Korean assassin. He's one of those wrestlers that little is known about, but here's what we do know. Choi wrestled in NWA Hollywood from May of 1975 through December. 
then he returns to NWA Hollywood in August of 1976, spends about a month there, and then comes here. He stays here from September of 76 through March of 77, then goes back to NWA Hollywood for about a month. Um, wrestling historian Matt Farmer uh, says that he worked in Mexico in 1981, teaming with Masanobu Fuji, and that Choi was originally t- uh, trained by Kintaro Oki. Hmm. Now, in my research, I found that Oki ran some shows in Korea in the mid-70s, and that on at least, on at least one of those shows, Louis Talley worked it. And Talley was booker hmm. for NWA Hollywood at the time that Choi's son was there. So that's where the connection was made. But he really doesn't have that long a run um, as far as a career. But what's interesting is if we look at his run here in this territory, it shows us why I calculate weekly spot ratings. Um, when a newcomer, particularly one that isn't already a, a, an established star, um, but when a newcomer comes to a territory, they're generally built up by starting in the prelims and working their way up, getting a series of wins over wrestlers, slotted as preliminary wrestlers, then mid-carders, and then working their way up to the top half of the cards. If we look at Choi Sun's weekly spot ratings, and you can see that on the blog, we can see this play out over the duration of the fourth quarter. At the beginning of October, his spot rating is below a .40, which puts him in the category of preliminary wrestlers. Um, by the end of October, it goes above a .40, which makes him a mid-carder. And after a couple more weeks, it goes up above a .60, which puts him in the category of upper mid-carder. And in mid-December... It crosses above a 0.80 for the first time, which theoretically makes him a main eventer. That's my cutoff. Anything from a 0.80 and above is technically a main eventer. So it's a slow and steady rise up the cards to give the newcomer credibility in the eyes of the fans. And, and that's, you know, how they did it. Now, this plays out differently in the case of an established star or someone who's returning to the territory. Um, Akbar would be a perfect example of that. When he returned in August, he had already been established as a main eventer here. So when he comes back, he just spends a couple of weeks in the mid-cards, um, probably gets in each town one you know, big victory over a mid-carder to sort of reintroduce him. And then he's quickly back into his previous role as a main eventer. Uh, and another person returning here and being in main events is the NWA World Heavyweight champion Terry Funk. He comes in for a week in November, and he's got an interesting uh, slate of opponents. He faces Ken Patera once, Harley Race once. Uh, Race is another uh, out-of-towner bring, being brought in. And he faced Billy Robinson twice. Now, Robinson was another new face in this territory, debuting in October and working his way up the cards for several weeks, culminating in these title shots against Funk, which saw Robinson winning by DQ after Funk threw him over the top rope. Robinson then leaves to go to All Japan, and when he comes back, he gets a couple of wins over former world heavyweight champion Pat O'Connor. Um, so they're clearly building him up. He's you know, beating the world champion by DQ and then beating a former world champion. He and Watts win the tag team titles. And, and John, I know enough about your tastes in wrestling and wrestlers to uh, presume that you were a fan of Billy Robinson. Yes, yes, yes. He is. I, I mean, even if you were a fan of wrestling because you like, let's say, the pageantry and the panache of it all. Someone like Billy Robinson, as raw as he was, he was just so good and so believable that you couldn't help but appreciate and respect him. And in a way, and 
This isn't meant to be a knock on Dale Lewis, but he, Billy Robinson was what Bill Watts and a lot of other promoters thought Dale Lewis could have been. That's excellent. Excellent. Uh, Dale Lewis uh, yeah. was, was technically very adept and skilled, but couldn't quite find a way to translate it into wrestling. Sometimes he played a character as the professor Dale Lewis. Um, in this territory, it was easy because the story of him and Watts having been former friends and roommates was true and real. So it adds that level of motion to it. But in a lot of territories, he was coming and given a big push and was, was technically very fine. And I'm not going to say he was a, a, you know, a bomb, but I think a lot of promoters thought he was going to do better. Uh, and, and whereas someone like Billy Robinson, who probably, I mean, it's, you know, I don't want to say he's a better actual wrestler because Dale Lewis was really damn good. But Robinson yeah. was just so different from what you saw because he had all that, uh, that training in England uh, in such a unique style that he got over huge, even if he, I don't want, it's not that he wasn't charismatic. It's a different charisma than nor, than yeah. you normally see in pro wrestlers in the territories. But there was just something really compelling about Billy Robinson in the ring and even on interviews, even oh, yeah. as bland as he was, he still, he just still captured your attention. Through his whole, even up, up uh, until the, through the early eighties, I've, I've, well, I go back and I watch that stuff now, and he still he still got it. And like there, I, I watched. I think the last Billy Robinson match I watched was a few weeks ago, on like an old AWA compilation disc, and it's like Billy Robinson versus Tito Santana, and it's from eighty eighty or eighty two or whenever last time Tito was there, and it's just a fantastic match. Did you like on paper you're like Billy Robinson versus Tito Santana? Like what? It's just fantastic. Uh, and I highly recommend searching out that match if you can find it on YouTube. It's great. Yeah, Tito, Tito's another one that's better than most people think. Yes. Um, because, you know, most of us saw him working WWF style um, where, you know, he didn't have to do as much. Uh, but yeah. he, his, his other places, and there were a lot of them, uh, he was a lot better than than people think again um, not to get too far off track i saw sure. another another match on the same comp two two matches on the same compilation of him uh in the awa teaming with uh rick martell uh pre uh you know pre strike force uh in the awa against the high flyers uh and just two fantastic like baby face versus baby face tag team matches that are just like that just they they work together so well and yeah. tito and tito is just tito gets his ass kicked uh in both of them he, he gets a couple there's like three or four occasions in both matches and like tito was just concussed he was just concussed again he's like getting his he uh fantastic fantastic sorry God, that, tito. wow so the high flyers <laughs> flew high and their opponents struck with force <laughs> Yeah, so uh, that's our look at 1976. A lot of you know new faces and uh, some of the familiar faces on top, but uh, the feud between Jaggers and Tyler propelled them up into the main events, um, and which is interesting. And now a lot of that was due to Cox and Murdoch being away in Japan and Billy Robinson still being built up. But it's interesting to see that when Jaggers and Tyler were a tag team, they didn't really get past the upper mid card spot. 
But once they split up and their feud uh, apparently did really well because it you know kept going for several months from October through January. Um, so it's a, a clear example of uh, them being given the ball and running with it. Yeah. Um, and they ran all over the place. We look at the weekly loop. Mondays were Tulsa and Monroe. Tuesdays were Alexander and Shreveport. Wednesdays were Baton Rouge and either Jackson or Vicksburg, Mississippi. Thursdays were North Little Rock and either Chalmette or New Orleans. Fridays were in Lafayette. Saturdays were in Greenwood and LaRanger. And Sundays were in Homa. Now, uh, we're presumably missing some spot shows uh, on Fridays and Saturdays. It's also possible there was a weekly town run Friday that we have not yet unearthed. Um, Oklahoma City had been the Friday town for many years, but they stopped running it in the mid-70s, or at the very least, ads stopped appearing in the paper in the mid-70s. So uh, that's one of the things that we're still trying to find. And I believe at this point in time, they're doing uh, TV Saturday mornings in Shreveport. And then they have the house shows in the smaller cities of Greenwood and LaRange or Saturday night, probably doing a spot show with uh, some of the bigger stars. Uh, and then Sundays was generally an off day for the crew. Uh, there's a small crew working Homa, and it's almost always the same crew that worked LaRange or the night before. Um, those two towns are, are far, far down into Louisiana. Um, and if the crew is living much further north, it's probably not worth it to go up and back. So the, the same guys that work LaRange generally work Homa, but not set in stone. In the third quarter of 1962, we're going to start off by the latest chapter of Al Getz thinks title histories are a big ball of hooey. Oh, yeah. So we're going to talk about the tag team titles in the territory. Uh, Louis Tillet, who we mentioned earlier, uh, talking about him booking an NWA Hollywood in the mid-70s. But here uh, in 1962, he is here and he and Jan Madrid had been in the territory for a little while. And in fact, Tillet may have been the booker. I'm not 100% positive, but I think so. But all of a sudden, one week in late March, they show up with tag team belts. And they're billed as the tag as the Southwest Tag Team Champions. At some point in April, it appears that these titles are renamed to the U.S. Tag Team titles. Except in Louisiana, where Tulay and Madrill are referred to as the, and this is how it's spelled out in the paper, the Arc Latex Champions. So it's shortened versions of Arkansas, Louisiana, and Texas. So A-R-K-L-A-T-E-X, Arc Latex. In mid-May, Al and Ramon Torres win the belts from Tulay and Madrid, and they start a feud with Jack and Jim Dalton in July. Uh, of course, Jack Dalton is Don Fargo. The Daltons win the tag team titles from the Torres brothers on July 2nd in Tulsa, and on July 3rd in Little Rock, and on July 5th in Wichita Falls, and on July 6th in Oklahoma City. In the same four cities, they have rematches the following week, which the Daltons win. Um, and in some of those cities, they had an added stipulation of two referees. However, in the middle of that week of rematches, they also face each other for the first time in Springfield, with the Daltons once again winning the titles. The last match between the two teams was a rematch the following week in Springfield, which saw the Torres brothers win to regain the titles. And that one is not repeated elsewhere. 
So the Torres brothers are tag team champions once again, I think, until the following week. Uh, this is July 25th when they lose them to Don Kent and the great Matsuda again in Springfield. So now Kent and Matsuda are the champs. Except in Shreveport and maybe other places, because on July 30th, <laughs> the Torreses are billed as Arklatex champions, and they lose them to Don Kent and Dan O'Shocker. So mm. the question is, are the U.S. tag team titles and the Arklatex tag team titles two separate titles? And the answer is, uh, maybe, <laughs> yes. And then a week later, in August, on August 6th, the Torres brothers beat Kent and O'Shocker in Shreveport, and the match is advertised as being for the Arklatex titles, but the results say that the Torres brothers won back their version of the U.S. Tag Team Wrestling Championship. So maybe they are the same belts, and they just have different lineages in different towns. And if that's not confusing enough for you, John, I need to point out that that match where the Torres brothers regained the U.S. Tag Team Wrestling Championship, they won the third fall by disqualification, yet were still awarded the belts afterwards. Mm. So I don't know what the hell's going on here, but I guess all is right with the world, and we have one tag team title in the territory, and the Torres brothers hey. have it, right? No, because no. there's still the pesky business of Kenton Matsuda having yeah. won the belts in Springfield. So I'm, I guess you would figure the Torreses would regain the belts from them to wrap this all up in a nice little bow. Makes sense, right? right? Yep. Wrong. Oh. The Torres brothers leave the territory in mid-August. Uh, they go to work for Goulas. And on September 5th, Kenton Matsuda lose the belts to the team of Danny Hodge and El Gran Lothario. Jose Lothario. At which point the tag belt seemed to be dropped entirely and not mentioned again until the summer of 1963. Oh boy. So you had, and this just goes to my point that wrestling, you know, tells a long-term narrative, but because of the TV being localized uh, via local promos in different markets, the narrative is sometimes different in each town. So we have a case where uh, in five towns, the Torres brothers beat the, uh, sorry, the Daltons win the tag team belts from the Torreses. Um, but then in only one of those towns do the Torreses win it back. Uh, but then they lose it in that same town and meanwhile lose it to a different team in Shreveport, regain it in Shreveport, and then leave, presumably with the tag team titles, except in Springfield, where another team were the champions, so they lose them to someone else, and then the tag team titles are dropped. I really feel like for these explanations, you need to have a sort of electoral college type map. <laughs> Yes, we need yes we it. need one of those uh, CNN maps or you know what they use on all the sports broadcasts a, a telestrator. Uh, I picture the uh, that meme from "It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia" with, with oh, Charlie uh, in in the mail room with the, the, the big board and the strings. Um, but so we mentioned we we just touched on a lot of the major players. Uh, the great Matsuda is of course Hiro Matsuda. Um, El Gran Lothario was the ring name at the time of uh, Jose Lothario. Um, and the one constant in the territory in the early 60s was Danny Hodge as the NWA World Junior Heavyweight Champion. Um, he did leave the territory for a few months 
earlier in the year. He worked for Goulas in late May and uh, also spent a week in Southern California. But right before he left, he had a handful of matches with someone who became one of his biggest career rivals, and that was Matsuda. The earliest known title match between them was on April 11th in Fort Smith, Arkansas, where they went to a one-hour draw after splitting the first two falls. Attendance for the show was listed as 1,348, and we don't normally have attendance numbers uh, listed for Fort Smith, and my gut feeling, and in some cases actual experience, is that when a number is listed, it's usually a good number, Uh, which which sort of makes sense. If they're not listing it all the time, um, when they have a really good show, that would be the time to list it. So uh, in the small city of Fort Smith, Arkansas, which I believe is the third biggest city in Arkansas, but is significantly smaller than Little Rock. Um, 1348 sounds like a pretty good number. Um, You know, and Fort Smith also had a very small crew. They usually only had four wrestlers. Uh, They would either have two singles matches or they would have a tag team and then two one fall prelims between the same four wrestlers. So uh, maybe at times they had six. But so, you know, 1348 for a title match uh, is pretty good. Um, And they came back three weeks later for a rematch with the time limit extended to 90 minutes. And this time, Hodge won the first fall at the 61 minute mark. Matsuda then won the second fall 20 minutes later. And the two spent the final nine minutes searching for the magic hole to end the match. That's how it was written in the paper, which I think is great. Um, Neither did. And once again, they went to a time limit draw. Um, The third match between them and Fort Smith was held a week later. And this time, the time limit was extended to two hours. Unfortunately, I don't have results, but we can imagine, uh, we can assume this was the blow-off with Hodge winning uh, and retaining. And then two nights later, they faced off in Oklahoma City for the first time with Hodge winning that bout. Hodge leaves, and then when he comes back, they face off again in several cities. It's a one-and-done in Tulsa and Springfield, and it's a two-match series in Oklahoma City, Little Rock, and Shreveport. In Little Rock, Don Kent interfered in the first bout, which led to him being barred from ringside for the rematch. In Shreveport, Hodge won the first bout in front of 726 fans, but a newspaper article the following day, which was titled, Hodge Wins Bout But Belt Held Up, states that Matsuda complained that he was deprived of victory. Commission officials refused to rule one way or the other, so a rematch will be lined up for next week, and the rematch was won by Hodge. But this again brings into question the definition of a title being held up as Hodge was still billed as champion the following week going into the rematch. There's another funny little thing I I wanted to talk about. So Joe McCarthy, uh, who's a wrestler uh, and not the former senator, who I believe, wasn't he deceased by this point in time? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and shortly, shortly after the episodes that I think he... He did. Yeah. So, uh, but Joe McCarthy turned babyface, and and John, tell this this is a funny little story in, involving wordplay, I guess. <laughs> it's a little funny, the interesting turn of events here with Joe McCarthy, the wrestler uh, who was still alive, uh, the ultimate babyface turn, staying alive. Uh, it turned babyface during the quarter, and started a feud with Sputnik Monroe at the end of September. So Joe McCarthy who shared her name with the Republican senator who in February 1950 at a speech at the Republicans Women Club of Wheeling, West Virginia, claimed that the State Department is infested with communists, feuded with 
a wrestler named Sputnik, which is hilarious. <laughs> I, I wonder if that you know was mentioned at all in, in interviews, because uh, I'm sure it's a complete coincidence and no one said, oh, we should have this guy feud with Sputnik because his name's Joe McCarthy. I, I don't think that was a conscious decision, but I wonder if they might have had a little fun with it after the fact. Um, you know, and, and, oh. yeah. and the reason Sputnik Monroe chose that ring name is, you know, the whole thing was because he's out of this world. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's some other uh, faces in the territory in uh, oh, yeah. 1962. We, uh, we, we talked about uh, Lothario, but Andre Drap, Rocky Smith, and the Elephant Boy. Um, we So we talked about Lothario, but uh, Drap was a champion bodybuilder known as the Lion of Lorraine which was where he was from in France. It's also said that he was a member of the French resistance in World War II and killed several Nazi soldiers. Oh. Um, I can't find any more details on this other than I think a Wikipedia mention and another source just stating those same facts. Nothing in detail, but I would love to get sort of confirmation yeah. of that. Um, and then Rocky Smith was uh, the brother of Curtis Smith. He's best known as one half of the Inferno's tag team. First, it was Frankie Kane and Rocky Smith, and then later it was Rocky and Curtis. And what was interesting about the Inferno's that in many ways set them apart from other mass tag teams was that each member had a distinct personality. There was the Fireball Inferno, who had the ability to throw fire, and what they referred to as the Clubfoot Inferno, who used a loaded boot. Um, now, Rocky was generally considered to have been the clubfoot Inferno, but it's believed that in actuality, the members took turns in this role because the loaded boot was actually really uncomfortable to wear. So huh. they sort of uh, swapped the duties. But when you think about masked tag teams, the whole idea is that you're not supposed to be able to tell them apart so they can pull the old switcheroo. Yeah. Now, there are some instances where a mass tag team just look-wise have different body types. For example, I don't think anyone had a problem distinguishing between Jody Hamilton and Hercules Hernandez <laughs> when the two worked as a team in, in the early 80s. But when we think of mass tag teams, part of the point of the gimmick is that you can't tell them apart. So in this aspect them having sort of distinct characteristics does set them apart from other tag teams. And John are there any other mass tag teams where th this sort of came into play? I could think of of of, of none. Um, yeah. The only the only one that I could think of that had a markedly different look, and this is much much later, what uh, and uh, in a similar fashion to what you were talking about, the assassins was the uh, the WWF machines. Well, uh -huh. well, yeah, but in in that case, you're supposed to know who they were. Yeah, so it was almost so that that's not yeah that's cheek. but yeah that's a, I remember didn't they have the junkyard machine at one point? Yeah, they did. Everybody was a machine at some point. <laughs> but to to your point with the uh, the infernos, no, I couldn't think of any 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 mass teams that uh, had a similar. Yeah, and a Thanks. lot of times in advertisements, if they were split up in singles matches, they would you know they would call um, the Clubfoot one. They would call him Clubfoot yeah. Inferno, as opposed to just saying number one and number two. Um, and I know going back to title histories, there are a lot of people like at one point one of the assassins wins the uh, wins the World Junior Heavyweight Title from Danny Hodge, 
And I don't know that we know for sure which one it is. Huh. Um, and, and, and because again, you know, there, it's not like number one was always Ernesto and number two was always Hamilton. I don't, I don't think that's how it worked. Um, also, a lot at of that times, point too, they may have been more difficult to tell apart. Than... Right. Yeah. Well, Jody, yeah, Jody, Jody in his younger days was, uh, much leaner. Um, but a lot of times, you know, when these mass tag teams are split up in singles bouts on a house show, they don't designate between number one and number two. It'll say versus a, versus a medic and then uh, another match versus the other medic. Um, so there wasn't necessarily always thought given to saying, you know, assassin number one is the better wrestler of the two. But in this case, when they are split up, it does seem that the Clubfoot Inferno gets the the marquee matches. I know uh, when they're in Amarillo, uh, he has several main events against Dory Jr. So, uh, again, that's just an interesting side note in the history of masked tag teams. And one more newcomer that I want to talk about, because he has a, a similar to Jaggers. He has an interesting background and he is the elephant boy. Oh, yeah. He, uh, he was born 1921. William Olivas is his birth name. A descendant of a legendary Spanish army captain, Raimundo Olivas. Uh, after high school, uh, he enrolls in Catholic Seminary College. Uh, joins, joins the army after Pearl Harbor. Uh, he's quickly shipped off to England uh, in preparation for storming the beaches at Normandy. And this that's where he says he was introduced to wrestling uh, by a, a fellow soldier who uh, was you know, in his off time when not soldiering uh, was a wrestler. So this this other soldier was was, was booked, booked to wrestle one night and his opponent no showed. So he, he says to uh, to young William. Uh, hey, uh, if I don't get, I don't, I don't get paid if I don't wrestle. Just, can you just jump in here with me? I'll walk you through this. It'll be a breeze. Don't worry about it. So he stepped in, took his place and sort of, sort of took right to it. Um, and he worked as a, uh, chaplain's assistant for most of the war, but he did go ashore on D-Day, uh, along with the, with the combat engineer. So he did, did see some action in World War II, um, honorably discharged after the war uh back in southern california where he's a friend of a friend who has it in with a local wrestling promoter i think it's hugh nichols is the promoter so he gets booked uh in the prelims some smaller shows under the name billy olivas uh works as a referee for a few years up to about 48 49 then uh, oddly he starts working under the name tony olivas which is sort of the plural version of the famous minnesota twin uh who's not in the baseball hall of fame by the way uh, and goes off to Chicago, meets Pfeffer, gets the wild man look, uh, transforms to elephant boy, becomes a top guy with Pfeffer. Uh, it works. That's where Mula gets introduced. That's uh, something very, very, very popular. The elephant boy gimmick um, is booked all over U.S., Canada, Mexico, South America, even even Cuba pre Castro. It's actually after a, after a card in Cuba where he has a dispute with Pfeffer over money, and that's where their, their five-year contract comes to a premature end after about three years and change. Uh, one of his next stops is in New Mexico, where in addition to wrestling, he starts promoting, perhaps inspired by his negative experience with Pfeffer. Uh, and, and then he books himself, essentially, on a world tour through Australia, New Zealand, Europe, parts of Africa. Uh, 
Networks, Mid-Atlantic in the 50s. Um, and there he gets the promotional bug again. It reaches out to Jim Crockett Sr., Bill Lewis, who is in charge of Virginia. Uh, and they are not interested in working with him, nor are they interested in having him work for them in a promotional capacity. Um, and this is a very long, drawn-out story um, where the FBI ends up getting involved. Lots of antitrust lawsuits. Uh, Tim Hornbaker has a great write-up on this. I highly recommend that. Um, uh, nothing ends up getting prosecuted, but the, it's a huge ordeal. Uh, it's like a couple years of an ordeal for him, and it, it ends up taking a lot of the wind out of his sails. You know, he 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 wrestles on and off for the next five or six years before retiring from the ring. Uh, gets married to a woman uh, to whom he was introduced to by Dr. Jerry Graham's mother. Hmm. Uh, Dr. Jerry Graham's mother uh, would 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 be featured prominently in the news uh, <laughs> several years later. Uh, he settles back down in Southern California, where him and his wife open a health spa in Ojai, California, which if you, it looks sort of like a like a new agey kind of resort town. Uh, and uh, they run the spa for for twenty something years uh, until his wife's death in the late eighties. After which he gets gets more involved in, in the church. I, th I think it was uh, the late seventies uh, when he became a deacon, and uh, after his wife's passing, he became a brother of the Order of Saint Augustine in nineteen ninety one, and restarts his biblical studies at a seminary in uh, Camarillo, California, and in ninety seven he was ordained an Augustinian priest. And I, I thought this was very sweet. The the city of Ojai named him a living treasure. In 2003, which I thought was very, very adorable. I want, uh, I want my city to name me a living treasure. I, I, me too, man. That'd be Come cool. On, Queens, let's get to it. Yeah. Uh, uh, he died February 2008 at the age of 86. But again, what, what a great, a great fulfilling life he seems to have led from starting off in the religious studies, going into the military, getting involved in wrestling. Attempting to promote wrestling, uh, running the business with his wife, and then coming back full circle to his religious studies. It's almost like he's led three or four lifetimes yeah. <laughs> in his one life. Part of the gimmick was his jacket he would wear to the ring. It's almost like a cloak sort of thing. And in all the, the Pfeffer publicity, which is all great, if you could ever read any of his publicity, it's fantastic, the, the, the programs of the papers. Uh, Pfeffer claimed that the cloak once belonged to Catherine the Great, Empress of Russia. <laughs> <laughs> and was, that's where, she, was that's, she the one that had relations with the horse? Oh, I, I don't know. Okay, don't know. That, that is, this is a famous story of some Russian, uh, yeah, but that allegedly um, had relations with the horse. <laughs> oh, Our podcast is veering into uh, different yeah. territory. Uh, charting, <laughs> charting the horses next month. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so uh, a lot of interesting faces in 1962 as, as the territory is much smaller in scope than it was in the 70s. Um, and uh, in 1962, they're running two or three shows a night, even with a smaller crew. Remember, they have less wrestlers per show in, in this day and age. I mentioned Fort Smith sometimes just had four wrestlers on it. A lot of these shows had four to six guys on it, uh, and they ran several towns. They also started to try and get back into the New Orleans market 
1962. They had been there in 1961. They were running New Orleans and Baton Rouge, um, withdrew from those two towns. But in uh, 1962, they started running Harvey, uh, which is just across the Mississippi, just south of New Orleans proper. Uh, and they were running that on Thursdays along with Wichita Falls. Wednesdays was Fort Smith and Springfield. And then they had a third show on Wednesdays or Thursdays in Muskogee, Oklahoma. It would sort of switch back and forth between Wednesdays and Thursdays. They ran three shows on Tuesdays in Little Rock, Monroe, and Hot Springs. Mondays was generally two shows with Shreveport and Tulsa. And then Fridays was Oklahoma City and presumably a second show in a spot town. Saturdays, they had live TV in Oklahoma City on Saturday nights. And they ran smaller towns or spot towns on Saturdays as well. Um, they ran Joplin, Missouri on Saturdays at this point in time, but it always went dark during the summer. Uh, they stopped running there July 7th, and they didn't run again until September 22nd. So they always took the summer off from Joplin, Missouri. That brings us to Stats 101, which is when I get really nerdy uh, and talk about uh, the numbers and, and some of the things we do. And as I mentioned earlier, I added a bookings per week column to the spot ratings. And one of the first things I noticed was there are two classes of wrestlers that often have less bookings per week than most of your regulars in the territory. And those are some of the preliminary wrestlers and some of the main eventers. And uh, in each case, there's different reasons for that. And this is something I've looked at, not just in what I post from the McGurk territory, but I've actually behind the scenes sort of done it for other territories and other time frames as well. And this still holds true. One of the things we've noticed about some preliminary wrestlers, particularly the younger inexperienced ones, they don't work every night. They don't wrestle every night. Sometimes they work as a referee on nights they're not booked. And sometimes if they're not booked for a match, they're probably still there to observe and to learn and to perhaps fill in if someone doesn't make the show or, you know, for some reason they need to change the card around and to soak up knowledge on the car rides to and from the towns. But um, when I looked at Buddy Landell's career, when he was first starting out as a preliminary wrestler, he was not wrestling as often as the mid-carters and, and you know some of the top guys on the crew. So this is definitely a true thing that happened with a lot of preliminary wrestlers. And in the case of the main eventers, there's a common theme, and it is babyface top star who also owns the territory and or is the booker. Uh, think about Bill Watts in this territory. Think about Fritz Von Erich, Dory Sr., Eddie Graham, Vern Gagne, Stu Hart. They're all positioned as top baby faces, but they're not working house shows six nights a week. They're generally working the bigger towns. They're generally working two or three nights a week. Um, and, and again, if they're, if they own the territory or part of the territory, they're making good money from that. So don't need to work every night of the week and their duties as owner and or booker also are time consuming and they might not just be able to wrestle as often as they can. So it's interesting to look at the numbers and look at how many bookings per week each of the wrestlers have. And it also gives us a ballpark idea of how complete the records are for that territory at that time frame. If uh, most of the full-timers have between three and four bookings per week, 
we can assume the data is about half or a little over half complete. But if the average, you know, wrestler has four to five bookings per week on average, we can tell that we have more complete data. We have a slightly higher percentage of all the house shows that are out there. So that's another thing we can do with the ballpark. But one of the interesting things is that someone who doesn't wrestle six nights a week might not have a feud score as high as someone who's wrestling six, seven nights a week. Uh, again, the feud score is a cumulative-based statistic. It's not an average. It's not a percentage. So if Bill Watts is only wrestling two or three nights a week, whoever he's feuding with, their feud score, based on how I calculate it, might not be as high as when Randy Tyler and Bobby Jaggers are wrestling five to six nights a week. And this also impacts that other wrestler that Watts is feuding with, he might not get a feud, a high feud score with someone else. For example, a lot of times, whoever Watts is feuding with is also feuding with Grizzly Smith a few nights a week. So in that case, let's say if it's Tarzan Tyler or Eric the Red, just to pick out two names at random, they might be feuding with both Watts and Grizzly. And because of that, the feud scores for both aren't really high. So... Uh, the feud score is something I created uh, at the beginning of the year, and it's it's still most certainly in the beta stage, and it measures what it sets out to measure. The problem is how we define a feud, and, and it's based on the definition of a feud, meaning the more you wrestle against the same person, the more likely that that's a feud. And that's not always true. As we mentioned earlier on, um, the first Superdome main event, Bill Watts versus Terry Funk, was based on that being the, it wasn't really the first match, but it was based on months of Funk refusing to wrestle Watts and having a bounty out on him. So that's certainly a feud because it played out over the course of several months on TV, but because they are not wrestling each other every night, it doesn't register on the feud score chart. So it ends up being like what happened in 1989 in the WWF where Randy Savage was feuding with Hogan on the weekends and Beefcake during the week because Hogan didn't work during the week. He only worked weekends. So it's kind of that sort of a deal. So again, you know, these statistics are meant as ballpark figures. They're meant uh, to just sort of look at who's wrestling who most often with the idea that uh, if it's happening a lot, it's almost certainly a feud. And if it's not happening as often, maybe it's still a feud. Uh, and, and in the case of these wrestlers that are only working a few nights a week, it, it could be. So that's sort of an in-depth look at the bookings per week feature. And you can, of course, see that on my fancy charts on the blog at chartingtheterritories.com. Next month, we're going to look at the fourth quarter of 1972. One of the challenges I face is not only trying to get complete house show records, but also trying to estimate how much we're missing. And in late 1972, John, we actually have more complete records for the McGurk territory than we do for perhaps any other time period. In fact, there's one specific week where I have records for 21 house shows. And as best I can tell, we're only missing one. So we're going to take a close look at that week and and look at uh, the different shows. We'll also look at the fourth quarter of 1962, where the newcomers include an Alaskan, a Galento, and a Gordon. And if you are not sick of hearing our voices, as we mentioned earlier, you can hear us on the the 605 podcast, Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame special. I'm on part one, 
and John's on part two. And I also recently appeared on episode 127 of John McAdams' Stick to Wrestling. And we stuck to wrestling. Uh, I actually had a lot of fun talking with John. We actually... Uh, we were supposed to. He had asked me originally to talk about 1979, 1980 Mid-South. But as we got going, we ended up talking about pretty much everything else. Yeah, you guys about that <laughs> But that. Great episode, though. Uh, yeah, great, it was, and it was a lot of fun because, you know, we didn't really you know, plan it out. We just stuck to wrestling and we went where the conversation took us. Um, as always, you can find me on Twitter at Al Gets Wrestling. That's Al G-E-T-Z Wrestling. And John? I am at John underscore Boucher, J-O-N underscore B-O-U-C-H-E-R on Twitter. Do not send me any Google results of Catherine the Great and a horse if you get to that before I do. Please do not. <laughs> and don't send them to me either. I, now, now that he said that, I don't want me to make the inference that it's okay to send it to me. It's not okay to send it to either of us. Uh, to be the first to know when new episodes of this podcast are available. You can subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingthepodcast.com. Charting the Territories is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy holidays. We will see you next time uh, sometime around Christmas. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. <laughs>